In this episode, I am joined by John Mackie Evans, teacher of Japanese swordsmanship, practitioner of several syncretic, esoteric Japanese disciplines of tantra and magic, and author of Kurikara, The Sword and the Serpent. John recalls aspects of his intense training in Japan, traces his lifetime spent uncovering the higher esoteric dimensions of the Japanese arts, and details the nine-stage journey from novice to master. John maps the subtle body and its correspondences to the five elements and the Dragon King protectors known as Nagaraja, explains the demands of following the inner path of transformation, and considers the special role of the sword in religious life. John also reflects on the process of opening the body and mind, recovery from severe back and brain injuries, and on the dangers of reaching your spiritual goals. So without further ado, John Mackey Evans. So when I was training with Fushi, the guy I mentioned in the introduction, so quite early on, he gave me three Gyorgya names, three practitioner names, um, in the order that you know you do them in English. So John Mackey Evans, and the first becomes in Japanese Ji-ong, which is the sound of the ear. In other words, that that was you know I'm a good student. I listen, listen, and then the second was Maki, which means straight tree. So straight growing. And then Eban Zu, which means um, wide, wide, uh, benevolent forehead. So when I wrote the book, I thought, well, why don't I just the the only the only way I can kind of indicate that something of that is I could spell the names in that way so i spelt the my my middle name as as it as if from transliterated from the japanese mm. that's the story on that what was interesting is how much the guy could see in terms of you know the stages it was very very interesting can you say more about that um well, there were a couple of, of other people who visited him while I was there who were English people. Um, and one of them has become a really famous artist uh, working with natural, I think she'd be happy to say, Susan Durgis is her name. She had a, um, an, a she's had a, an exhibition at the Tate Modern. Um, and she was doing kind of like conceptual stuff. And he said, you know, you should work more with nature. And his way of kind of switching her into that was to get her to, to, to do some work with bamboo, but bamboo roots. Um, and first she had to dig up the roots. This took about three days. <laughs> so, you know, it kind of really dragged her right down into the earth. And that that became her, you know, that's set her life journey as an artist. And then somebody else who's now very famous um, 
working working with sound and family constellations um and she was doing quite different things at the time and he he just i know he had that ability to kind of see very very quickly what people's talents were and and how that might evolve um yeah and how did your names match what would become of your life well i mean i think as a student i i didn't really have many talents you know i wasn't physically very gifted um and intellectually a bit kind of turgid a bit sort of slow slowly like i had a i had a i had a, a tutor he's a good friend of mine now and he was convinced i was gonna gonna get a first at oxford because he re we really used to enjoy we used to really enjoy talking to each other um but my my sort of intellectual rate of going through things and especially sort of regurgitating stuff slow let's 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 put it this way slow even at primary school i remember being given that kind of uh, muted compliment um but i think yeah i had that ability to really pay attention and to try and feel try and get something be open to it in a way which is not you which you know in there are a lot of japanese people like that um but people from this side of the world or Euro european and north americans tend not not to have that sort of capacity so i kind of reckon I've, I've over the years i've recognized that mackie i mean you could you know you could also say uptight so that was pretty much puritanical uptight that would be the other other side of mackie and that's definitely where i was coming from um everything has its advantages and disadvantages so if you're if you're kind of if you're if you're i don't know what's the word what, what the word would be like an honest john type i am an honest john type this in a way protects you from certain things so in a way it's kind of protected my energy um I compare it to to somebody like my friend and mentor Shandor, and he, you know, he said, "I've all my wild, all my horses went wild, went out of the stable, and you've been keeping yours carefully in the in the stable for many years, and that gives you an advantage in some ways, but on the other hand." There are many things that you miss out on or where you're 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 you've you've not responded to things because you were too closed off so i see that in the kind of mackie and then the airban part is you know what's happening now which is opening up at this advanced age um Opening up to what? Can you talk a little bit about that process of opening up that you've been noticing? Well, opening up in the body, for one thing. 
in a way I, I really wouldn't have if I'd been thinking, you know, when I was when I went to Japan <clears throat> and I was 28 and I started really getting into the martial arts 30, 31. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm training with people who've been, for example, people have been Japanese guys who've been doing kendo since they were eight. And thinking, you know, it's a bit late, you know, I'm I'm halfway through my 30s, well, a couple of years long. Um, and feeling that, you know, have I got time to really explore this? And when I look back at that now, it's just, you know, laughable because so many things have come on much, much later. Um, and the same on the outside, because, you know, if you're opening up on the inside, you open to the outside. So in terms of, you know, my teaching and students. Um, yeah. What do you mean opening up on the inside? You mean in terms of uh, spiritual or energetic cultivation, that sort of thing, and and what's it seems <clears throat> to surprise you this this opening? Well, people talk about things, you know, like I get that with students. You get students who who say they want to this to, this to happen, and then finally it happens, and then they're hugely kind of ecstatic about it. And that's the last you see of them. Really? That's happened a few times, yeah. Because, you know, the last thing that people really want mostly is for the thing that they talk about to actually happen because it's it's fine to think about it as a kind of a, a concept or a picture or a kind of an emotional, a little hopeful bubble. But when you actually enter that, everything has to change. So then there's a huge amount of, um, well, it's painful because there's resistance. So all the parts of you that resist have to go through a kind of, maybe this is over, over kind of playing it a bit, but, but, but a bit like a kind of grieving process. Um, and so there's a grieving process and there's also a period of of kind of numbness where you know some part of you's been working and it's done a job for you but if you're going to move into this bigger sphere it has to it has to stop operating so then it's kind of it has to die and then there's a period after the death where you you the new thing hasn't opened up properly so you feel kind of lost so i have this kind of grading system i teach two styles so one style is the batodo the japanese swordsmanship taught by my master who died almost 20 years ago um and then I have a system which is based loosely on what I was taught by the, the Yambabushi teacher, um, which is kind of based in Mikyo, in Vajrayana Buddhism, 
and the mountain ascetic tradition. And so people who were, and they grade in both, you're going through the black belt system. And, uh, you know, as long as you, you're reasonably competent in the Japanese system, in the Nakamura, you, you know, you will, you do it for a couple of years, you get shodan, you do it another couple of years, and so on, and so on, and so on. But in the Kurikaraju, when you get to the end of the Shoden period, so in 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 the old school martial arts, rather than the Dan grades, they had three levels of transmission, Shoden. So Sho means beginning, Den means transmission, first transmission, Chuden, which means middle transmission, and then Okuden, which means deep transmission. So in those three, I've got three, three um layers in each so you have the first dan second dan third dan within the first transmission and this is to do with the elements earth water fire so earth is to do with grounding water is to do with fluidity um adaptability and then fire is to do with um explosiveness but also the increasing of the internal heat and learning to communicate with somebody else through that. So in partner forms, we do a kind of like a bit like push hands, but with the swords. And the, I mean, I've had 10 students or nine students now over the last 20 years got to that point. And although it, it the, you know, you're working in a way which involves the body, the mind, the emotions, the energy, everything else. It, it is largely in the physical sphere. Then in the Chuden, you enter the you enter to into this into air, and that's to do with your mental, the mental system and your conditioning. And it means that you then have to start stepping out of the kind of vehicle you built and begin to confront it. So I call, you know, I give give it the name confrontation. Um, but you confront it not not in a way of um, aggress aggression or you know hysteria or but in the same way that in the in the third stage where you do this sticky swords practice you learn to connect to the other person through the the energy the key so then if you're able to do that with somebody else outside then you turn in and you look on your shadow and you start to work like that with yourself but this this is a whole different kind of um, level of commitment, and so far I've only had one student who's kind of entered that. Um, and the point I was going to make is, you know, five years ago, I was trying to push people, you know, to to you know, if if only you would lose all this much weight or if only you could 
stop using your intellect in this way or if you could only face up to these experiences you had as a child or when you were in the armed forces or whatever um but if the last thing you want as a teacher is to push somebody into a place that they're not really prepared to cope with so you know i realized that for this stage it has to be something that comes from them and what makes that stage that juden stage so much more of a commitment well as i said earlier because of the the kind of the difficulties of confronting that and then learning to um you know allow parts of yourself to die if you want to put it that way um because it will change lots of things about you um another thing is if people are in a relationships which of course everybody's in all kinds of relationships that can make a big difference so if you're if your partner with your partner if you start to change like that then that's also hugely challenging for your partner especially if you're not very good at handling it um you know so there's lots of things to consider um and i think it's part of opening up is to allow people to find their own way in their own time to be available um but i think when people you know it's a completely different kind of teaching to the shodan completely different kind and if anybody ever got through to the okuden if i'm still around i'm sure that would be quite different again so in the book you know you mentioned wanting to talk about the elements so there are five elements but there are nine stages and in in shingon which is the vajrayana buddhism of japan they're seen sometimes as uh, so you've got the earth water so this is the these are the stages of the the shugyo of the progression the sadhana you've got the earth water fire air space so space is the is is the fifth here but it's it's in the center of the mandala and space represents dainichi nyorai the great sun buddha in vajrayana which is the kind of um the the um overarching principle represented in in our mandala by the deity of fudo myo who is the unmoving mantra king um anyway it's all by the by so space 
Then as you move through that, you go in reverse. It's like a mirror. So from space, it's air, fire, water, and then the final stage is back into the earth. So again, you're grounding. And there is a, um, a practice called the Kujiho, the nine, the practice of the nine syllables, nine shouts, nine mantras, nine mudras. And that's a description of that journey. So, you know, the, the Dan grades or the, 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 the rankings in the Kurikararyu that I teach at the school going through that process so the idea being that when you get to fifth dan in the middle you should be capable of spontaneous action with the sword what my teacher called jiu jizai so jiu jiu means free and jizai means free but the freedom is in two ways so you freed free the observing principle is free, so you're seeing everything, and you're able to act in any way freely, appropriately, spontaneously. So, I mean, that's a pretty good place to get to if you can manage it. Um, and the journey from that point then is having been able to manifest that through in, in the world of action with the sword is then that becomes internalized into the the kurikara or the kundalini practice yeah so whether I'll ever get a student to teach that to who knows but uh... so for that second half final four stages does that still involve the sword or are other practices done at that point? Well, it's a question I've asked myself a few times because about five years ago, I considered I'd had so I had problems with my shoulders for so long. Um, well, all over the body, of course. I mean, this is the same story with anybody like me who's been doing this kind of stuff for a long time. But the particular set of of physical problems which meant it was very hard for me to use the sword very much at all uh, so i thought you know maybe this is a sign time to you know give up give up the school move to the black mountains and get a hut you know whatever um but the message keep kept coming back no um, and, and since then, the sword has become, you know, I've become, the thing about the sword is, I was thinking this a, a lot about this when I was listening to some of the guys talking about, you know, the internal arts and the Chinese martial arts systems. The thing about the sword is that you, I think, I mean, I, th 
I describes it in the book the, the you know when you first you first you first get hold of the sword it's like this completely alien object and then slowly over time it becomes a way of exploring deep in I mean I put it much better than that deep inside yourself and also as you express with it it's it tells you you know how much you can do with the sword is an indication of what what's it's a kind of corrective if you like it's a corrective um i remember i was doing a demonstration once at some big japanese fair and i'd had some sort of experience in meditation um and i got this feeling that one the kind of a certain a certain kind of feeling of benevolence and good feeling inside and i was i was trying to work with that and i stabbed myself and i thought yeah okay <laughs> um So the sword is a way of, of uh, it's a corrective. It's like a musical instrument. Um, and it can do anything to the degree to which you're able to go with it. Um, so in a sense, the, the sword is actually an alive, a living thing. Um, there's this famous saying in J Japanese about the the choice is the satsujin ken or the katsujin ken so ken means a sword jin means a human being katsu means to bring to life and satsu means to murder so you've got the murdering sword or you've got the life-giving sword and my teacher was a genuine uh, my japanese sword teacher nakamura sensei was the the epitome of this because he was in the japanese army in the in the pacific war he was in the japanese army in manchuria in a sort of special forces regiment where they they used to attack with swords well the ncos and the officers with swords they just charge in and just the sheer intimidation was enough to um, terrified the opposition and he'd had that experience and later in the war because of his because of his particular um, depth of skill he was seconded to do more training but his closest you know fellow instructors were all Many of them were then became the the people who did the executions with the sword. So at the end of the war, I think his his immediate superior and some of his best friends were all, I don't know, hung or shot or whatever they did with them at the end of the war. But because he had that that um, special skill and devotion to the sword, he was saved. He lived. And that was what drove him to teach. And that was what drove him to teach 
in a way where it was the sword was being used to to bring people fully alive not just to teach them a kind of murderous fantasy because you know when you're learning to to to, to fight with the sword you're not learning for street combat there's definitely something else going on because you know that's just not an option yeah so that's what the sword has the capacity to do that and you know like say in the last couple of weeks i had a cup a, a moment where something quite sort of new happened where i was able to move in a way i've not been able to move before a kind of freedom with the sword um yeah i mean it's funny because i i as i mentioned in the book in the introduction the when when fushi gave me the sword and said try this and there was something that felt really um uh, what's the word i felt really at home with it in a way but i really didn't want to do it you know because i you know i thought you know i i want to become religious i went to japan i was going to do acupuncture study meditation um i'd be conditioned by the monastery or was in the head of the monastery that you know you don't want to be waste your time cultivating the physical body um so i kind of ran away and then i had a I'd had back problems from the age of 15 when I took all the the school weight training equipment home. And the last thing the sports teacher said to me was, you're going to you're going to herniate a disc. You'll be sorry. <laughs> Which he'd done. He wore a corset all the corset all the time because he damaged his lower back weightlifting. So I duly took it home and uh, herniated a disc. And. So from the age of 15 to 45, really, that, that problem would just kept coming back and back and back. Even when I was doing all this hard training, there'd be like a month a year when I'd be flat on the floor. Um, and uh, what was the point of this one? Yeah. So it got to a stage where I thought it was going to be in a wheelchair. So I gave up the sword and left Japan, decided to be a yoga teacher or an Alexander teacher, tried to find all sorts of kinds of things, you know, to heal my back. And then I met Shandor at a Nyanga yoga teacher's weekend in London. Who knows? Godfrey may have been there. I don't know. Um, and, uh, Anyway, for some reason, I got invited to have a coffee with him, with Jerry, who was running the, who was in charge of the seminar, maybe the two or three of us. And he said to me, you know, what are you doing? I said, you know, I'm doing my um, beginners, Iyengar yoga teaching. And he said, no, no, not that shit. What are you doing? And I said, you know, I didn't know what he meant. And he thought I was, you know, in the armed forces or martial arts or something you know he spotted it 
And I said, oh, I used to do the sword in Japan. And his eyes lit up. And he said, uh, OK, so we're going to Japan. You're going to introduce me to your sword teacher. And I said, no, but, you know, I've got this really bad back problem. He said, no, no, I'll fix your back. Then we're going to see your sword teacher. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of got dragged back into it. Um, so it's like I said earlier, you're always trying to escape from the thing that you want that you you know the thing that you the, the thing that you say you want that you dream about there's always a part of you that's trying to run away from it um so i've tried running away from the sword many times and each time i get pulled back yeah how did shandor fix your back well, he wouldn't put it this way, but intra-abdominal pressure. You know, so you, if you learn to, the correct way to use the diaphragmatic breathing, it creates this protective pressure so that even if you're, you know, you've got quite a bad distortion or compression um, or scar tissue, it just opens things up and gives a kind of support that allows the body to be. So, I mean, it wasn't overnight. It's, you know, it's a been a continuous process, but that, that was the major shift. Yeah. You mentioned before that students want something and then it happens. And then they sometimes often they leave at that point. What are the sorts of things that those students wanted to happen? Well, if you've got, you know, if you're, I'll tell you the most amazing one. Um, there was a woman who was coming to my classes. So I, I teach the conditioning part, which is a big part of the Kurikaryu separate. It's a bit like Qigong, a mixture of Qigong and um, sort of slow sword movements with heavy poles or short steel poles. Um, and then later on, there's sort of more sort of coiling movements. And uh, she was very repressed. And she she came in one day and she was um very i don't know i couldn't read her at all anyway she said that she'd suddenly discovered this huge kind of sexual being um and apparently her partner he was he was over the moon but she was kind of uh, i don't know it was very strange it wasn't I didn't really understand. I, 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 th I think I think she just found it too much to cope with. Um, so that's one example. I mean, another example I can think of is somebody that had been very locked in physically. And then suddenly their body kind of unlocked. And I, as you know, I'm sure this is very rare, you know, for this to happen. Usually it's kind of incremental. 
or two steps forwards, one step backwards. Um, but that you know, all all I know is they were very delighted with it, and that was the last time I saw them. So I think it, you know it can be just too, you know, too much for people to handle. Is this nine-stage journey? Is that material all within the Kurikari Ryu system, or have you drawn material from other systems? You mentioned the word Kundalini, for example, and one doesn't immediately associate that with the Japanese arts. At least I don't. Uh, I'm probably wrong about that. Well, could the 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 period of when the when the tantric tantric schools were growing up in India and those kinds of practices so with the mudra the mantra the mandala very internal practice with the, a few postures um, and at that time the practitioners there were ones that were Shaivites so we would call them Hindu not, not that that really means anything to an Indian person. It's, it's just a kind of um, foreign term. Then there were the Buddhist practitioners. There were also Sufis, and they were all doing the same kinds of practices. And those practices were taken by the Vajrayana to Tibet, to China, and from China to Japan. So there is a, a continuity there. Um, in terms of the, the actual kind of practices done, I think the people in Japan who were, who were doing the, the strongest practices were the ones in the, the kind of Yamabushi, the Shugendo tradition. So they they were kind of, well, for, for, for some time, they were kind of free. Later on, the two main um, esoteric Buddhist schools kind of took over and 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 took them under their wing, the, the, the Tendai school and the Shingon school. But for a long time, it was very open and kind of wild and there were lots of different influences so although you know japanese people would most japanese people would find it abhorrent to think to consider um things like japanese sword making the metalworking traditions the shamanic traditions and the uh, the um, some of the internal martial arts traditions came from the Altai Mountains, 
via career. I mean, it is slowly there are more people beginning to recognize this. And the village that I've been going to for the last 10 years is a place called Dorogawa. And it's it's at the foot, well, yeah, it's at the foot of the Omine, the Mount Omine, which is one of the three most important Shugendo centers in Japan, if not the most important one. And they are described themselves as the town of the Oni, of the demons. And when you look back into the tradition, it's because the, the, the ethnic makeup of that area was primarily people who'd come from outside Japan, who were kind of a bit darker, slightly bigger noses. You have this image of what's called, of what's called the Tengu, um, who were these kind of goblin figures with wings and who hang out in the forested mountains and who impart esoteric knowledge to, well, notably to some very famous swordsmen over the centuries. Um, but the the you know this is an this is a symbolic representation of um, something that came from outside that was you know um, so when I first met Shandor, he said, you know, he used to have this dream about his Hun ancestors. You know, the, the Huns and the Mongols with their swords. And my immediate thought was, you know, well, yeah, but yeah, I'm interested in the Japanese sword, which is altogether more, um, I don't know how I would have seen it as being more spiritual or more um, refined. But over the years, it's become clearer and clearer that that's exactly where it came from. So in the same way, you had, you know, the Silk Road and the main, well, I don't know if it's the main, one of the main um, pathways was from India through China into Japan. So all that same knowledge is, is there. Some of it latent, extremely latent, but if you start digging, you start to um, find it. So when I when I left Fushi, I had the as I explained in the book. He just taught me the nine mudras. No, I was given no explanation about what they meant, and I just practiced them alongside the sword and some very simple kind of rituals. And then after about, you know, as the years go by, and as I was also studying yoga and tantra, the significance of the elements and of those different stages and of the process, it slowly starts to, to unfold. Um, and the last 10 years, 
have been to do with the well, what in India is called the Nagarajas. Have you heard of the Nagarajas? So the Nagarajas are the snake kings. And again, you've got a kind of similar thing going on here because the Nagas are also a race of people in the north of India. Again, the same kind of ethnic area or roots you know, for this other stuff that came through Korea with the, they were, they were mercenaries of the Chinese armies. Um, but Buddhism took the Nagarajas, the, the snake kings, and they became the eight or eight very significant guardians of the, the Buddha's law of the Dharma. And in Japan, they're called the Hachidai Ryuo, which is exactly the same thing, but dragons, so they become dragons. And um, as I said in the book in 2011, it always seemed to me that the dragons represent a kind of not just energetic thing, but the way that the body works when it when the human body is most free and integrated and expressive it works through these kind of spirals um and in in um indian anatomy for example they just describe the body as having the the arms there's two there's one suji or one kind of um not tendon suji a kind of sinew there's one sinew that goes one way and another sinew that goes the other way. So I guess in in modern day terms, in, in the kind of alternative medicine, what do they call them? The um you know that there's a there's a very famous book of it with the these these lines of following through the connective tissue. Yes, fascial, tra fascial trains, I think it's called. Yes, yes, yes. And they op so the, the dragon, the, the dragons are ways of descri describing that kind of movement. And so having found the mandala that goes with the Kujiho, so I you know I said these these nine, this system of nine syllables or nine shouts and spells with the mantras and the mudras. Um there are there's one text which assigns a guardian to each of these nine. And these nine guardians are the five mantra kings, which is Fudomyo in the middle, or Vidyarajas in, in Indian, in Sanskrit, Vidyarajas. And then the Shtenlo, which are the four guardians of the directions which is a chinese of chinese origin so north south east west so you've got these are the yang ones on the outside and then you have the yin ones on the inside which are these mantra kings and then in the center you have fudomyo which is this is the ether element space element which is both yang and yin because it's everything and he's a manifestation of Dainichi Nyorai, which is this kind of core 
of the Dharmakaya, the body of the Dharma. Um, and so I spent some time trying to locate these in the body. Um, you know, as these the gates. So you've worked out this there's four gates. So th these would be on the back of the body, here, 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 and then you've got the in ones, but which is which? And the there was nothing I couldn't couldn't find any Japanese sources, but in the Indian equivalent of Feng Shui, which is called Uh, the the name has has escapes me for the moment. Anyway, it's it's the it's the system whereby um, all buildings are built or cities are designed according to the the directions. Vashtu, perhaps. Vashtu Purusha. Vashtu Purusha. Yeah, Vastu Purusha. So the vast the image of the Vastu Purusha is north south west east and then and then it all made sense it all made sense um and then the last the last part is then that the dragons are the expressions of those in action so then i then i had to work out which obviously kurikara is the one in the center because Kurikara is from Fudomyo, this so is it another another way of looking at the Kundalini or the energy of the central channel. Um and um I met after after I wrote the book, I was contacted by somebody called Sylvain Guintar. Have you heard of him? No. So his Japanese Japanese name is Kuban. And he he was doing martial arts and ninjutsu, all sorts of things in Japan. And he 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 started um, studying shugendo, and he became a shingon priest. And he did. You've heard of the mountain monks, the marathon monks. Yes. So he did the shingon equivalent of that, which is he lived in a cave for a year was it a year i can't quite remember any long period every day he had to do a marathon through the mountain and then he was living on this very very simple diet and he was doing this milliripper type practice in the cave he also did this while he was having ankylosing spondylitis if you would have ankylosing spondylitis i haven't sounds terrible <laughs> it is terrible it's truly terrible um, what is it? It's a kind of autoimmune disease, mm. which is um, primarily in the skeletal system. It can come into the eyes as well. So what happens to your spine is it becomes very, very inflamed. And then it creates all this calcium and it fuses. Gosh. So he was living in this damp cave and... Uh, going through all these pains in this center while doing this practice. And at the end of the practice, as with the, mount, the marathon monks, they have to do a nine day fast without water. 
Um, so on the last day, you know, they have to be helped to their feet um, to go to the well to have their first drink. So he'd done this practice. The guy who did the practice before him died because, as Sylvan pointed out, you know, he unfortunately is a bit stupid. He didn't realize you have to do this because not having fluid is really the is really the key, is really the, the major challenge. You have to do this in a place where the where it's there's moisture in the air. So he chose a very dry place, didn't make it. Um, and uh, so he he had this amazing, amazing experience, despite who knows, partly because of the ankylosing spondylitis. Who knows? Um, and uh, anyway, he contacted me and he told me about this place, this Doragawa. And uh, he mentioned that it has a shrine or it has a, a separate hall from the Honzon, which is where the main, the main Buddhist deities are enshrined, to Hachidairyuo. So immediately my ears, the eight dragon, you know, here's a place where the eight dragon kings are enshrined and it has a waterfall training place, which is called the Dragon Spring. So, you know, I couldn't wait to get there. And also the priest who runs it is a genuine, there aren't many of them, you know, somebody who's really genuine. And I arrived and then this village, you know, it's this village of the, the demons. Um, so I've been going back there every year for a while. I have well, three years because we couldn't go because of COVID. Um, but that kind of fitted that, you know, that gave me the last part of the, the mandala. So which I attempt to teach my poor students, many of whom thought they're only coming to learn how to wave the Japanese sword around. Um, you know, the last part of the mandala, the, the, the dragon, the dragons. So I have a practice um, in the squat. It's something that Shandor came, came, came across He's continually going through these texts, finding more texts, so that um, chanting, one, one way to do the chanting best is not Padmasana, but to sit in the squat, if you can, with the feet together, knees out. And so I go, I go through the mandala and... I had this, I had a brain, I had a very bad fall. I tripped over this, not this dog, his predecessor, when I was moving equipment early in the morning in the dark for a cutting session. He used to have all these big heavy stands and wet mats. And I tripped, tripped over the the dog's lead. And because they're so they're so strong and dense, there was no give at all. So I went 
hurling headfirst into this, the edge of a concrete step right in here. Um, and I managed to managed to teach my class that morning and then went to A&E. And they gave me this kind of, should we scan you or should we not? And then they went, the, the A&E doctor went to the consultant and came back and said, no, you should be all right. You know, just, you know, watch, watch out. I got my friend to come and stay with me that night. So in case I um, had a seizure in the night or, you know, suddenly it got worse. Or, um, but over the next nine weeks, I, I kept having headaches. And then eventually I noticed that my right arm and leg were beginning to not do what I wanted to do. You know, I was... I couldn't do the reach certain key on the keyboard, just couldn't get to. And then I I was in denial for about three days. And then I went in and they said, you know, <clears throat> you've got a subdural hematoma and it's squeezing the right, the the left side of your brain. So eventually I had surgery, they drilled two holes, and then they syringe syringe out the the you've heard of this one the syringe out the the um the stuff um and it gave me a real a real yes a live insight into the you know the i forget the the anatomical term but you know you the left side of the brain is controlling the right side of the body And uh, so the mandala in the body, so for example, right shoulder, right arm is controlled by the left side of the brain. So the left side of the brain is the, the one that's about getting, doing, thinking about things. And that's the arm, you know, obviously the left-handed people, it's a slightly different have you read the book the master and his emissary Ian McGilchrist yeah. yeah so you know with 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 animals the the left eye the left eye is always sorry the the right eye is mostly with the left side of the brain the right eye the right side is always looking for stuff so predators will always come in from the you remember that bit in the book the predators will always come from this side because they know that this part is not so switched on. Whereas the left eye is scanning, is receptive. Anyway, all this kind of stuff. So um, the mandala in the the mandala in the brain, which is operating through the mandala of the body, is switched so when when i go through the mandala for example i start you know the, the sequence in the kujiho the sequence starts with the bishamonten um the general of the north who's in this side so but i close the right eye and i'm looking from the left eye not because it's the left eye but to get the feeling of the left side of the brain um 
So I name, then there's the mantra, then there's the bijam, the seed syllable, done with the breathing, then I shift to the next one. So I go through like this with the parts of the body, with the big gates, with the parts of the brain. And the, the other thing that, you know, I find a bit, you know, there's, a, there's lots and lots about left, right, but not so much about top, bottom. So, um, which is which is the area that you deal with when you go past the midpoint in the you know in the nine stages is you're then entering the unconscious realms um and uh so when i'm when i'm when you when i'm looking at those ones so i'm looking from the left side of the brain but i sink the feeling in here sink the feeling and then the right groin, right side of the tailbone. You know, I go through this process. So um, it's very in the body, but it's also very to do with the the brain. And um, I mean, my my a lot of pranayama practices. For example, if you're doing pranayama, the you have these different diaphragms at the different levels. And their behavior is different. So, for example, up in the brain, when you breathe in, this draws inwards. The other ones expand. The you know the the pelvic one and the abdominal one inside it contracts in like this. Um, and uh, so the 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 the. the the brain is a it, it it has a the sensations in the brain a bit like a muscle it, it operates a bit like a muscle um so you can you can you feel it has a kind of tactile a tactile uh presence and this is hugely helpful when you're dealing with the kind of shit that we deal with you know so stuff going on in your mind which you know is not important. You know, it's a kind of circuit that you, you've you got into the habit of getting cut, sucked into um, or um, obsessive thoughts or uh, that kind of stuff. And when you can, you can approach the brain and, and feel it in terms of this like fluid and energy and moving around and relating to different parts of the body, this is what I meant earlier at the beginning in talking about opening up. Um, another key, a kind of a sort of insight into this was about, I can't remember now, it's so hard to, especially over COVID, um, trying to work out what happened when. But anyway, my mother, my mother died. My mother was at the age of 84. She was she was walking to the shops and she was going past this house, this garage and somebody reversed out and they caught, they caught her shoe or a foot and then they threw her back onto the back of her head. Um, and it was such a loud bang. 
that people a quarter of a mile away opened the window to work out what happened. So it was a huge, you know, horrendous brain injury. Um, but my mother was very, very tough. And so there was this, uh, the Radcliffe, the big hospital in the, in Oxford. They were saying, look, she's 80, you know, 84, you know, really, we don't want to, do, we don't want to do, we don't want to do brain surgery on somebody like this, but her other vital signs were so strong. They did. And my brother and I were kind of waiting. They said, oh, it'll be about a couple of hours. So, you know, four hours later, when we're kind of like this, young doctor comes out and he says, oh, it went really well. And he put his hands out. He said, you know, the, the brain likes that We had to take a big chunk like that out. This is a guy who's not been properly trained about how to deal with, <laughs> you know, family members. He said, but then as we took the bit, the whole brain went really relaxed like this. And, you know, our, that was a very striking image for all sorts of reasons. But, you know, you can feel the brain like that. Um, and after the surgery, I remember as, as I was, yeah. When I came out of the surgery, was in this vast kind of like warehouse in the Royal London Hospital. Apparently they have this place for, when there's a catastrophe, they have this huge place they're gonna deal with all the uh, all the casualties. So it was like a vast kind of cathedral. And um, as I was coming out, I had this, this kind of vision of the Shumisen, which is Mount Sumeru, you know, the mountain at the central of the center of the Buddhist universe. And I was on, kind of on the top of it. And I was looking down and the dragons, the scent, the weather, the locus of the dragons, there's what's called the dragon ball, like, or the dragon egg. It's a very potent kind of myth in different places. And I could see these different colored balls. And I was on the top of this mountain. And then this Tibetan guy appeared. So I said to the guy, I said, you know, for whatever reason, I said, you must be from Milleripa's Lap Valley. He said, yes, how did you know that? And this was the um, the guy from the ICU unit who was a Tibetan from the valley of <laughs> Milleripa. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then somebody explained to me afterwards that the the French, the French um, anaesthetist was famous for her mixes. <laughs> so, but that didn't explain the uh, Tibetan guy actually showing up. But there you go. Um, so that was kind of part of the the sort of input. The, the what's the word? The um, input to this exploration of you know the different parts of the brain and following the surgery you get a lot of air bubbles in the brain and it interferes with the the sacrospinal sacrospinal fluid yes so i could feel all this stuff moving around inside 
And um, when it really moved, there'd be a kind of like a gluk, 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 gluk sound, which initially I thought was just me hearing it. And then I did it once with my wife, Karen, and she heard it from the other side of the room, which was quite alarming. So we went back to the... Uh, I went back to the hospital and got readmitted for three days because I was convinced that they'd messed up the surgery. But it wasn't. It was just this, you know, stuff going on. And because of all the things I've done, I was just much more switched on to what to what was going on and, and more, uh, in this case, anxious about what might have happened. Um, yeah. Some people talking about Kundalini and central channel and that sort of thing. Some people do associate that with the cerebrospinal fluid and creating internal pressures and moving it in different sorts of ways. Did you experiment given that you had this stuff happening with your cerebrospinal fluid? Did you attempt to use certain practices to see what would happen? No, I was much too uh, scared. I just, I just wanted it to get better, you know. I mean, I was doing the mudras at the time as a way of, because you know, one hand had stopped working, so I was, I was doing those. But the the focus was all the time on just stabilizing. And um, when you've had, I don't know other kinds of operations, but when you've had the the, the this kind of surgery. It's important that you stay quiet, they said, for nine weeks, eight, nine weeks, um, because the brain's been traumatized. And if you stimulate it excessively, you can get a seizure. And if you do get a seizure, it can then become a kind of thing for the rest of your life. You're going to be dealing with seizures. So I think three weeks... After the surgery, I was watching something exciting on the TV or and getting a bit excited about the kinds of training I might do or beginning to kind of. And then I got this visual distortion. So then I got very scared and uh, I concentrated even more on being quiet and stable and relaxed. Um, but you know, over over time, it, because you you kind of enter you enter somewhere inside yourself, you're made to realize that there is this possibility, there is this kind of realm where these sorts of phenomena are, which you can actually perceive. Um, definitely, I've become more aware of that. The best, the best explanation is in Shandor's second book, which I helped edit. There's a thing called the Dara Daharantra. Anyway, it's a kind of waterfall inside. It's a kind of waterfall inside it, which moves in two directions. There's an image of the 
it would be very good if I can remember the details of this. Anyway, it's the, there's an image. So there's an archer who has to shoot by looking into a into a pool up above him. I think it's in the story of the the um, the uh, Mahabharata. It's about Arjuna, I think, who's shooting upwards. So your your attention is down into the pool. And then there's this thing going up and there's this communication. And it's um, the problem. The problem, I mean, I've had lots of people over the years who've, you know, claimed to have Kundalini experiences. And usually it's like a kind of a, just a kind of super excitement. Um, or like a short circuit. And all the experiences well, I say all the experiences. I mean, there are quite a few over the many decades. That when that thing is strongest, it's it's it manifests as a kind of a steadiness, so steady. Um, which, of course, is what Fudo Fudo is the unmoving, shining king. So it's the kind of incarnation of that principle. Yeah. There's a poem which includes every phonetic sound in the Japanese alphabet and which was considered at one time to have been written by Kukai. Um, so obviously you've heard of Kukai. Kukai means the sea of the sea of void, which was the name of the founder of the Shingon sect in Japan. And very loosely, the poem says, Life is beautiful, but it's fading like the it's a very evocative and kind of ambiguous so it suggests cherry blossom it suggests the bloom of the um complexion of a very young beautiful woman and how that's being lost or how that's you know that that's fading that's the first half and then the second half it says go into the deep mountains do not get drunk. And uh, so the first half, the first half conveys the essence of Japanese culture as it is popularly known. Um, the second half conveys the side of Japanese culture, which perhaps has been only experienced by a few people, but which is contained deep within the mountain religion, Zen, you know, all these, the deep spirituality of Japan, um, which is, you go into the place of the, the void, of the, where you, you know, you experience this effulgence, bright light or um, spectacular, thunderous sound reverberating 
And the important thing is to stay steady with it. And, you know, with the sword, if you don't do that, you know, you can get, if you get really skillful with the sword and then you're doing a demonstration in front of thousands of people and the energy starts moving, you cannot indulge because the moment you indulge, oops, oops, and I've had a few of those experiences. So it kind of keeps you back on the the center. Yeah. That's very fascinating indeed. To be honest with you, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of the things I'd like to ask you about. We've gone in a very unexpected, at least I didn't expect it, direction, but it's been so fascinating nonetheless. So I'm wondering, I might petition you for a sequel. Some of the themes that I'd like to explore, and you've touched on them, you've hinted on them, is the, the body, the role of the body, the role of conditioning, and um, one's relationship to one's body in general, and the sorts of things you're talking about. You've, you've, you've hinted on a few of those things. For example, carrying extra weight as being a blockage, potentially. And you've talked about the body opening and closing you've talked about inside versus outside of that sort of thing. That's something I'd like to ask you about. Also, your own biography. Very fascinating indeed, going to Japan in 1981 and all the things that happened after then. We've touched on some of your biography, but I'd like to go back to the beginning. And your various teachers, Fushi-sensei, Nakamura. Well, I'm, I'm very happy the way it's gone because I'm very used to saying that other stuff, you know? Um, yeah. And why, uh, why do you think we didn't do that this time? Well, maybe because there's a certain kind of pressure within me to for the things that that are coming, you know, that I that I'm that are coming out now that are more interesting than you know, because when you look back, the significance of events changes. Mm. Um, the idea that the the when I was doing lots and lots of work on Patanjali. You know, I memorized all the Yoga Sutras when I was in my 20s. Gosh. We recite them every day. Um, in Sanskrit? Yeah. Wow. And tried to, in order to really grasp, does this actually apply to what actually, you know, actually you're living in, how you're thinking. Um, and uh, you have this sort of conundrum that the you've got the the purusha and the prakriti you're familiar with these terms yeah yes the, the purusha principle of seeing what sometimes seen as the soul and then you have the matrix the world of phenomena um and then they they're together but they need to be separate or are they separate and they need to be together? You know, what's going on? <laughs> you know, and it, it really is a very difficult for the mind to grasp. I mean, that, obviously, that's partly the point, because that part of your mind can't 
it's only the deep mind that can understand it. Um, but to put it really, to put it really simply, when I was eleven, my father died. And I had a very strange reaction to it. Well, you know, obsessive reaction to it that I thought it was some, you know, that there was something about this experience that was trying to teach me something. Um, and I kind of developed like a ritual, which I do every night. And I took my father used to do lots of DIY stuff and um, and he had a, a big vice, you know, a, a vice for carpentry and so the vice must have weighed about, I don't know, five, six kilograms. And I was just 11. And I'd lie on my back and I'd have the vice on the ground behind me like this. And I'd take it slowly over down to my abdomen back again. I used to do this a hundred times. And every time it passed over my head, I thought, you're facing death now. If you let go, you'd be where your father is. A very, I mean, it's a pretty bizarre kind of thing to do. Um, you know, it kind of something that represented my father. And then having met, you know, been exposed at the age of 10 to this, the presence of death. Um, and it kind of set me up for, for what I did and for what I've been doing ever since. Because the first time which I describe in the introduction to the book when Fushi gave me the sword and I did this movement and he kind of his breath was taken away because he said you know you know I, he as he he described I had a, my body was a bag of shit you know I, I was stiff and heavy but when I did this movement you know it was amazing because I'd been doing this practice for it but it had also meant develop my shoulders in a way which was which is i think why i got the back problem because i you know i wasn't connecting properly to my legs <clears throat> doing the weight training exercises <clears throat> and even when i was someone i was 30 at some tournament in japan 32 33 I was asked to do a special demonstration by Nakamura Sensei. So I'm doing it. And I was, you know, I was pretty big that those in those days, but you know, very fast. And uh, I could hear these people say, whoa, look, that gaijin is very good in him, blah, blah, blah. But I knew it wasn't connecting down here. I knew I'd have a back pain shortly after and in a few months time when we're back on the floor you know so this thing connected me with the sword but it's taken me 40 years it's taken me 40 years to be able to you know properly connect it with here so i'm not overusing the shoulders and damaging the back and you know spend most of the day looking as if i'm some sort of you know, um, and and in a way, that's a kind of image of the universe. So you've got this 
this thing inside people where they know somehow there's this thing they ought to connect with, but there's so many things in the way. So they have to undergo that journey. Um, and in my case, in a very sort of prosaic and kind of um, pedestrian way, you know, that's exactly what I've been dealing with. But if you did, you know, if you didn't have that, if there, if there wasn't that journey to, to undertake, if, 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 for example, you know, like sometimes I get students who come and you just look at them, the way they move, nothing stands out. They're just so smooth, coordinated, at ease. Why would you then spend hours and hours a day doing stuff if you, you know, in that state? Um, yeah. So, you know, I could talk about, I did this in 19, blah, 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 and I did this in blah, blah, blah. But really, that is the story, you know. And and the rest has been kind of not inconsequential. Obviously, it's not inconsequential, but that's the kind of the basic narrative. Yeah. It's been wonderful. Thank you. It's such a fascinating discussion. I very much look forward to the sequel. Well, perhaps next time I would quite like to ask you a bit more. Um, it would be interesting for me to, you know, to to know where you're coming from. And um, basically, I've talked about what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we can do that. OK, good. John Mackey Evans, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.